0: reading this morning is from Acts 23. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others, Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin. My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. If you don't remember the full story or it's a long time ago, or maybe you haven't ever read the story in Acts. I think it's probably good that I give you some context. Paul, before this incident, had been on a long missionary journey into what is now um, Turkey and part of Greece. And he came back to Jerusalem. And when he came back to Jerusalem, he'd been asked to sponsor some Christian Jews who wanted to take vows as Nazarites which is a very committed group to the Jewish way of So, if you look in the Old Testament shaving your head and committing your life fully to God and to sponsor them he needed to be purified himself. If you're out of That area for a long time as a Jew, you were unclean, so you had to go through a ceremonial period when you went to the temple and got ceremonially clean by praying and things like that. And then he could be sponsor of these um, Nazarites. And that took about a week. So the events before this, the reason why Paul was in the Sanhedrin, was because um, about the sixth or seventh day that they were doing this, some Jews from where he'd been a missionary obviously didn't like, as we know this is history of Paul, lots of people didn't like him and what he did, both Jews and Gentiles, they stirred up the people in the temple and there would have been a lot of people about and they said, this man speaks against the law, he speaks against Jews and he even brings Gentiles into the inner temple. So Gentiles were allowed in the outer part of the temple but only Jews were allowed into the inner temple. So, and The Roman authorities upheld this, that it was a death sentence to a Gentile to enter the inner court. So they knew what they were saying was going to guarantee that Paul would be either lynched or be put to death in another in a more official manner. So this happened the day before. So a riot took place and the commander who was in the fortress nearby? Um, about a thousand soldiers in there to keep the peace. And he thought he didn't want a riot on his hands, so he went there and rescued Paul. And then Paul said, Well, can I explain myself to the crowd? So he said, Yeah, okay, carry on. So the Apostle Paul preached, he explained about his conversion that we heard about from uh, Tim. And Tom, a fortnight ago. And everything was going fine. And they listened to him because he was speaking in Hebrew. And all these people thought, great, he's speaking our our language. He's not trying to be posh and speak in Greek or Latin. But then he came to this point where he'd said to them, and Jesus told me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, i.e unless anybody's Jewish here, people like you and me. And at which point, a riot kicked off again, and they wanted him dead. So the commander took him back into the fortress and thought, I have no idea what this is all about, but I guess the the solution to this problem is to bring him to the Sanhedrin, which was the highest Jewish court at the time, where there's a high priest who officiated in the temple, and bunch of up to 70 um, devout and legal scholars of the Jewish faith. And this is the group that Paul is brought before. So, I guess Paul probably thought that, I mean, there's a it's suspected that he possibly, in a previous life, if you like, in the pre- before he was converted, he might have been a member of the Sanhedrin himself because he was, a, he was a, a faithful and biblical scholar. So Paul starts by saying that he's lived his life with a good conscience up till now. And you might be thinking, well, what about when he was persecuting Christians? But Paul genuinely believed he was doing God's work then with a good conscience. He didn't feel guilty about doing it until Jesus spoke to him on the Damascus Road, after which he was converted. And then with a good conscience, he preached the gospel. Thus, a bad conscience, so what he said was almost certainly true. A bad conscience will tell you when you're wrong. But you need to be in very close communion with God and to read and understand how God speaks to us in the Bible to be sure that a good conscience isn't wrong. Many Christians have treated others badly with a good conscience, persecuting people to death, slavery. You can think of the things that people did with a good conscience in this case, he didn't have time for any further explanation because the high priest said, told, him to, told somebody to hit him. And I don't know Greek, but I'm told that uh, the Greek word here is the same as is used for when the Roman soldiers beat Jesus. So it wasn't a, a, a sort of a slap. This was, this was basically you know, a very hard punch in the face. Um, and you can imagine... That Paul having been beaten already and expecting to get a legal upright judgment wasn't very happy about it and he reacted what Paul said was right about the Mosaic law that the law clearly states that when you're sitting in judgment on somebody you don't strike them or commit anything to them until you've convicted them but he also cursed this high priest and he acknowledged what he said was, was wrong it has to be borne in mind that the high priest in this case Ananias It doesn't tell us in the Acts, but other histories around that time indicate that he was a a violent, uh, corrupt high priest. And indeed, the curse, if you like, of Paul actually came to fruition a few years later because a mob killed him for his corruption, uh, which didn't make that right. But... It tells you something about this man who had the uh, title of high priest but was corrupt from top to bottom. And it's a challenge to us when we see people in positions of authority and how we deal with them if they're corrupt and wrong. And it's right to challenge people who are corrupt and wrong. But there's also the authority of the position they hold which is why I was somewhat amused by the banners around the coronation saying, not my king. And I found it somewhat strange because I could say, I don't want to have a king. I would prefer a different form of government. But you can't deny that the way the our state is currently set up, that the head of state is a king. So saying he's not is a bit like saying that the sun isn't shining. You can say, I'd like it changed, but you can't deny it in the same way. Here, Paul realized that cursing an official, it was a form of insulting the structure that God had put in place. But I was reminded when I was reading this, the the Apostle Peter very eloquently describes a different way of reacting to this situation. He says in the second, the first epistle, chapter 2, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. The Apostle Paul realized that if the high priest was corrupt, the chances of him getting a fair trial were almost null and void. So he cut to the chase, and it's something that I've mentioned already today. It's something that Matthew, when he was preaching last week, mentioned. It comes down to the resurrection, Some of us yesterday were privileged to be in Shrewsbury by the River Severn to hear a former atheist give his testimony before his baptism in the river. And he said something that has always been true. But we sometimes forget. He said the question for most people isn't Did Jesus live and die? But was he raised? Is he alive? And he said, He now firmly believes he is. That's the question that the Apostle Paul posed to these people here. It is about the belief in the resurrection. Now, he would have gone on as he did in the past and twice later in the book of Acts to explain the exact resurrection that he was talking about. But it was crucial, and it is the question that we each one of us have to answer. Do we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because most secular historians have very little doubt that he did live and that he died but the question is was he raised is he alive today as the apostle Paul said in a different place he said if, there is, if Christ isn't raised we're still in our sins we, we're not forgiven and we're also the most miserable of people because we're doing something that's pointless there's no point in living a Christian life if Christ is dead the Sadducees as it says here, explains here and I'm sure you remember in the Gospels when Jesus was talking and he spoke to the Sadducees and they spoke about the resurrection, and they thought they'd catch him out by saying, In the resurrection, you know, what happens if a person had five wives or six husbands or whatever else? Um, and Jesus said, Well, you haven't a clue what you're talking about because in heaven you're not given in marriage. And second, there's another occasion when they said, Well, there's, no, there's no, nothing in the, in the scriptures, as in the Old Testament, to talk about the resurrection. And he said, Well, What did God say to Moses? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, he was talking about living people. They were alive in heaven. The Sadducees had long history with um, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were more people-based, seeking to live a pious life. They believed in the final judgment and the resurrection. They believed in the angels, as it says here. But their dislike of one another went back a long way. A hundred years before this incident, the Pharisees had been, a large number of them had been killed by those in power. So the Sadducees had the political power and the religious power. They tended to be, the high priests were tended to be Sadducees and they had all the political, political power, they tended to side with the Romans for convenience. What's interesting about Sadducees is after the rebellion in AD 70, which happened possibly 10 to 20 years after this incident here, they ceased to exist. Why should that be? The Pharisees and their teachings went on and you can still see those in um, devout Jews today. It's in essence the teaching and beliefs of the Pharisees that have persisted in, in, the, in Judaism. The, the reason I think that the Sadducees ceased to exist because in essence they were materialists and I guess most of us meet quite a few of those kind of people on a day to day basis that we are just what you see before you there is nothing more to you than atoms that are randomly put together to make a person once their earthly power which was the temple and the authority behind it was gone there was nothing left what hope was there there wasn't any hope so therefore they ceased to exist and it made me wonder, what is my source of power and confidence? Is it money? The position I have, it might not be a big position, but it's a position whether it's even just in a family setting, or a work setting, or a church setting, or a club, or a, or a charity, or a society, or anything else, you have a certain status. And that's what you're relying on. The job you have. Whatever it is. Or is it my mind? I think. As Descartes said. Therefore I am. That I'm relying on my mind. As the basis. Of who I think I am. That that makes me. Who I am. And I have confidence. Because I think. What if I lose that? We all know the devastation of diseases like Alzheimer's or is it my body the world today and has always been full of people who worship the human body it's perfectly natural to find other human beings physically attractive but whether I'm old or young I might be having my confidence as the Sadducees did in their body, that those things were the things that mattered to them because there wasn't anything else. There was, no, there was no hereafter. There was no final judgment. It was all here. All those things that I've spoken about can be used for good or evil, for a blessing or a curse. That's what James says about the tongue. With it we curse God and other men, and we also bless God and pray for other people but what remains for you if all is gone what remains and people think it is probably the last letter that the apostle Paul wrote which was the second letter to Timothy. And in the last chapter, chapter four, he says this. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. That's a sort of euphemistic reference to dying for the faith. And the time for my but. Departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I think it's a wonderful claim and it's a question for each one of us is that a claim that we're wanting to make that whether we have a day left a month, a year, a decade whether in our hearts we're living our life here for Christ but also accepting that when the race is finished there is a crown of righteousness laid up in heaven. The promise to this repeatedly beaten servant before the incident in the temple and the Sanhedrin there had been times when Paul had been stoned and repeatedly beaten. He was beaten in Philippi almost everywhere he went he was assaulted. And the promise to him isn't I'm giving you a free pass now, Paul. Um, You've done a good job. Um, You can retire now and step aside. The promise, that last verse I read, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify for me in Rome. So, When things are troubling and difficult, and I don't know how many of you here have been beaten for the name of Christ, I have no idea, but I'm sure there's times when life is very difficult, the circumstances, whether just caused by other people or or your own failings, because we all know about those, our own failings. But the promise of Jesus... Is to stand, but that he stands by us. That he's never far, as also was preached last week. He's never far from each one of us, but we need to turn to him and acknowledge him for who he is and what he's done for us. I mean, oftentimes we're blind to the obvious by those who are seeking to help us and we ignore them. It's like that story of the, ma- of the drowning man in the sea. And he was offered various helps and said, no, 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 God's going God's to save me. And he drowned and he got to heaven. And he said, well, why didn't you save me? He said, well, I sent lots of people to save you but you turn them down. And I think sometimes we're like that. We don't see the help that's near at hand through the servants of Christ that are round about us. We think that I need, Lord, a miracle here. And I was speaking to Emma, the wife of Jake, who was baptized yesterday. And I said when you first knew Jake and he was he wasn't an aggressive atheist but he had all the answers as in all the, all the, the right questions to, to why he didn't believe anything and I said just out of curiosity was your faith a bit like those early Christians in the upper room praying for the release of Peter from prison and then when Peter knocks on the door they can't believe it and she said it's exactly like that the miracle of Christ working in someone's heart is amazing and despite as she said not having the faith that she'd like to have still God answered that faith and the husband came, came to faith in Jesus. That's all I really had to say. The song that I chose to close with, I think, um, although maybe some of you won't know it or not very well, so we can stand together and sing or just listen to the words or read the words um, but I think it sums up some of our experiences when things are difficult but to remember that Jesus is with us and available to help us when we ask him